Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide Podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, today I am doing an episode on something called a trauma bond. Now, this is something that I have been doing a lot of research about recently because it comes up with so many of my clients and members of my groups. And in doing the research, I actually realized that I had a trauma bond in a relationship that ended only five and a half years ago. So what this means is that a good five years into my coaching career, 15 years into my codependency recovery and well into my divorce, I slipped down this rabbit hole myself. Because this can happen to anyone, especially those of us who are preconditioned to be drawn to relationships that are abusive or in some way reflective of past or childhood traumas. And I will talk a little bit more about that later in the episode. But the bottom line, and what I want to say up front, is that there is no shame in this. But there is great power in seeing the trauma bond for what it is, because only then can we begin to break free of it. And I'm going to tell you the story of my relationship to illustrate what this can look like in real time. But before we get to my story, let's define what a trauma bond is. So according to Shahida Arabi, who is the author of the amazing book, Becoming the Narcissist's Nightmare, which I highly recommend, a trauma bond is a bond that forms due to intense emotional experiences, usually with a toxic person. Similar to Stockholm Syndrome, it holds us emotionally captive to a manipulator who keeps us hostage, whether that be through physical or emotional abuse. According to Dr. Patrick Carnes, these types of destructive attachments are known as betrayal bonds and can take place in any context where a relationship can be forged. They can occur in romantic relationships, in friendships, within the family, and the workplace. Trauma bonds are rampant in unhealthy, abusive, or otherwise toxic relationships. They're usually strengthened by intermittent reinforcement, which is the periodic maybe love bombing, uh, false promises, or small kindnesses that a manipulator throws our way to keep us ensnared to the relationship. They can also be exacerbated by our own abandonment wounds. So as I said, In order to better illustrate this, I am going to share with you the story of my own trauma-bonded relationship, which surprisingly was not with my ex-husband. So about five and a half years ago, I ended a relationship that was the most toxic relationship I've ever been in. It was also the most exhilarating and euphoric, as these things often are. From the moment we got together... It was like the entire earth shifted on its axis for both of us. We'd known each other for a while before we became romantically involved. So the moment that we turned that corner, it was on fast and furious. 
Within a few days of our first kiss, he told me that I had unlocked his closed-up heart, that other women have tried, even saying they were going to find the key to unlock him, and he laughed because he was pretty sure that there was no key, <laughs> and that what he gave to them was all he ever in was interested or, in or capable of giving a woman, which was in essence very, very little. And then he met me, and everything changed on a dime. John which is not his real name, <laughs> had been married for 27 years, had three grown kids. And when we met, he'd been divorced for 12 years. And his life up until literally the moment we kissed had been lived completely on his own terms. His wife had raised their children while he worked 15-hour days climbing corporate and social ladders, eventually becoming the center of a highly esteemed social and work circle. And while to the outside world, they may have looked like they had it all, the truth was that he'd really given nothing to the woman who'd held his family together for all of those years. He came and went as he, as he pleased. He was mostly gone. There was certainly no emotional intimacy. And eventually, he had an affair and blew the whole thing up. He lost his job, his home, and his kids. But now that he'd met me, he finally understood what love was all about. I had cracked him open. I was the key to his heart. I was the one. And in the beginning, our relationship was nothing short of perfect. We lay in bed nose to nose. We shared dreams. We went on trips together to Mexico and San Francisco. He'd rush out of work to come and sit on my couch and do nothing but talk for hours on end. He brought me to meet his dying mother so that I could tell her not to worry about him, that I'd take care of him and keep him safe. When she died, I held him through his grief, attending the funeral and processing with his ex-wife and daughter. I met his kids. I actually helped him heal his relationship with his kids. He knew my son extremely well, and they took on special Lego projects together, just the two of them. Whenever I'd go to the bathroom, he'd have our toothbrushes set up in different states of romantic repose. He'd grab me in the middle of the drugstore to dance me down the aisles. He was the most romantic fool I'd ever met, and I had never been so happy in my life. He was my one true love. Seven months after our first kiss, we traveled to San Francisco for Thanksgiving with his family. And as we were sitting in a fancy, fancy hotel lobby, scrolling through photos on his phone of things we'd done that day, a text popped up. It was from someone named Kathy. I miss you, it said. My blood ran cold. Shocks of adrenaline coursed through my arms and legs. This could not be fucking happening. We'd been together for seven months. We were deeply intimately entwined in each other's lives. As far as I knew he'd never had an emotionally intimate relationship with anyone who might miss him. Who the fuck was this woman? And when I asked him, his answer was like cryptic and weird. Like if he'd said, well, she's an ex, and then like I totally would have understood. But instead, he couldn't or wouldn't give me a straight answer. And as I pressed him, my panic turned to terror. Something was wrong. I felt a betrayal like I'd never known before. This man had told me that he had never been in an intimate relationship. And here is a woman saying that he, she missed him. I'd been cheated on and I had been lied to before, but this was something else entirely. 
I fled the hotel lobby in the dead of night, and I wandered aimlessly around the city for what felt like an eternity. What was I supposed to do? Where was I supposed to go? Where was I supposed to sleep? How could I go home and tell my friends that I'd been so horribly, terribly wrong about this man who was clearly lying to me about something? I finally found my way back to our hotel where John was waiting for me in the lobby. He told me a story that night about how years ago he'd gotten hooked into this woman he met on Craigslist. He'd been meeting women on there for a while, turns out, but apparently this woman turned out to be a prostitute. And when he found this out, he canceled his meeting with her, and every once in a while she'd reach out to see if she could finally score with him. He was the John that got away. He had been cagey about it because he was embarrassed and he never wanted to have to tell me that story. So I pressed him about why the fuck her name was saved in his phone. And he told me he'd put it in there so that he could easily identify it when she reached out, as she often did, particularly around the holidays when people get lonely. I know what you're thinking. She's a prostitute. She's not lonely. If she can't score with a John, she moves on. So probably this woman's not a prostitute. But here's the thing. I wanted for this to be okay. I needed for this to be okay. I needed to believe his story, which of course sounds like complete and insane, utter bullshit, but I needed to believe it in order to keep this love that was so pure, so deep, so perfect, so much like everything I'd ever wanted or needed. If only you knew our love and our bond, how deep, except you do, If you're listening to this and you've experienced this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So I told John in no uncertain terms to handle it, to tell her to stop, to block her from his phone. He agreed. He was terrified of losing me and he'd do anything to keep me. He was sorry. He was more than sorry. That night was one of the most beautiful we had ever spent as a couple. There's makeup sex. And then there's the passion of two people who are so deeply in love and who've just saved themselves from the brink of collapse. It's like every time Nicole Kidman's character in Big Little Lies has makeup sex with her abusive husband. It was like that. And that's relevant here because if you want exhibit A of a trauma bond, see Celeste and Perry Wright immediately. So John and I went back home stronger and closer than ever before. And for the next month, everything was perfect, romantic beautiful. It was a blip. Kathy was a blip that brought us together and made us stronger. The next month, John and I hosted a Christmas party together at his loft. The night before going up north to an Airbnb that we'd rented on the water on Tomales Bay, just north of San Francisco, we threw a an epic party. His friends and colleagues and my friends were all coming. This was a big deal. This man was the most private man on earth. He'd created an entire life around being a man of mystery. So to open himself up like this, to proudly proclaim that I existed, that we were together, to send out an invitation stating Kate and John invite you to, was completely unprecedented. So the night of the party, I was so excited. I could not have been more happy. I wanted everyone 
to meet him who hadn't yet, and I wanted to meet all of his colleagues and friends and be on display as his. I wore a stunning red dress. My hair swooped into a French twist, and I looked every bit the part of happy Christmas hostess. John's loft didn't have a buzzer system, so every time someone arrived, they'd call him, and one of us would go down and let people in. As the night went on, and as the party grew and grew, it was very well attended, probably for the curiosity factor more than anything, I eventually grabbed his phone to answer it when someone called. And there on the screen was Kathy's name flashing at me. I wish I had the words to describe what the rest of the night was like, but I think I blacked most of it out. I handed him his phone, and I ran out into the hallway, unable to control my tears. My best friends followed me out. You guys, it was like a fucking high school drama. People walking in, important colleagues of John's while I was sobbing in my red dress in the hallway. And at that moment, John turned ice cold. He didn't do emotions very well, but this time, not only did he not come to me to comfort me, he turned on me. He became vicious that night. He would walk by me as I tried to play hostess, and he would growl something nasty in my ear. We'd be standing together, talking to someone, trying to keep it together. He'd put his arm around me, and then he would dig his fingers into my back. He was deliberately trying to hurt me, both physically and emotionally. And I was in a state of shock. I had no idea what had happened to the man who said I was the key to his heart, to the man who put our toothbrushes together in the shower drain in an erotic embrace, who sent me covert love messages by touching his nose while giving an important speech at work, indicating how we slept together nose to nose and how we couldn't wait till this was over so we could get back to bed nose to nose. Here was a man who seemed to hate me with all of his being, who was actively and aggressively trying to hurt me all night long. At the end of the night, there was one guest left, John's best friend, the most important person for me to meet. I was so shell-shocked that I stayed. I probably could have walked the fuck out hours before, but for some reason I didn't. I was too shocked. I stayed, and as we sat there on the couch together, Josh across from us in a chair, John continued to dig his fingers into my back and make odd passive-aggressive comments in our conversation. Eventually, I think even Josh picked up that there was something terribly wrong going on, and he left. I walked around the loft, putting away trays and wrapping up leftovers until I felt physically ill, and I walked out. And at 7 o'clock the next morning, having not slept a wink, I went back. I needed to give John the chance to explain himself. I wanted to understand how this man who claimed to love me so fucking much could hurt me this much. And when I crawled into bed with him, I began to sob. I literally don't remember the last time I cried as hard as I did that morning. I was heaving. I was hyperventilating. And when John saw me in that state, it was like something snapped back. He realized what he'd done, and he was a wreck. He kept saying he had never wanted to hurt me. He didn't know what happened. He didn't know how he could be so horrible. He was horrified by his own behavior. It was the wine. And about Kathy, he said he had just forgotten. He didn't think it was a really big deal. By the time we got back from San Francisco over over Thanksgiving, he just didn't give it another thought. He didn't block her or tell her to stop because he literally didn't think he would ever hear from her again. And again, I needed to believe him. 
I had to believe him. I couldn't lose him. This love was like nothing I'd ever experienced. This was true love. This was real. Like in the way that the Velveteen Rabbit becomes real. It says in the Velveteen Rabbit, real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. That was John's favorite quote from this book, and I'd order it. I'd ordered it from an antique bookseller and had it framed for him for Christmas, and I was planning to give it to him that night. If we were real because of the love that we gave each other, then we could get through whatever this was. It was fear, he said. It was his original attachment. He was from a Catholic family. His mom was popping out babies so fast she couldn't care for them all. So one, while she was caring for the toddler before him and nursing the infant after him, he'd been shift, shipped off to be raised by an aunt for his first two years. He had the most intense case of avoidant attachment his therapist had ever seen. And since he understood this and wanted to work through it with me, well, I, I loved him. The last thing I wanted to do was validate his deepest fears of being abandoned and worse, replaced. So I forgave him. After hours of talking and crying, I agreed to stay to make this work. And again, we became closer than we'd ever been. I mean, this is what relationships were about, right? You hit upon bumps in the road and the truest test of a relationship is not not having bumps, but how you get through them. Our bumps always brought us closer. So it always seemed worth it in the end. We went up north and we had a magical weekend. He must have apologized 47 times a day. He worked overtime to make it up to me. His shame was deep and real and I comforted him through it. My compassionate and deeply empathic nature makes me forgive easily. And it makes me want to see the best in people. And I absolutely saw the best in John. I saw the wounded little boy in him. And all I wanted was to help him heal, to know that my love would be constant and that I would never leave or abandon him or cast him aside. My love would heal him and we would be together forever. As you can probably predict, this cycle repeated for the next two years and it got worse. The betrayals became more cutting and decisive. The closer we got, the more John loved me, the more he tried to hurt me when times were difficult, and the more I tried to prove my love to him, thinking if I could just get through to him how much I loved him, all of this craziness would just stop. But it only got worse because the truth is that the more intimate we became, the more his wounds flared up. We ended up breaking up so often that my friends began asking what our status was before beginning a conversation. And interspersed with these low times were the highest of highs, floating in the pool at our favorite hotels in Palm Springs, hand in hand, on matching rafts, trips to Mexico, to the Sierra Nevadas, where we had a fake drunken wedding ceremony under the big, beautiful pines. Our relationship ended two years after it began, when, at a party for work that I had been attending as his girlfriend, he publicly announced that he was single. Maybe he meant not married, but it didn't fucking matter. I'll never forget my friends who were in that room and the way their heads snapped towards me. But what really hit the nail on the head was the look on my friend Moses' face. 
the pain and the agony and the rage reflected there for me was unbearable. And in that moment, everything stopped for me. I stayed until the end of the event, and then I went straight home, and I ended the two-year madness once and for all. Now, there's a lot more to this story, of course, including, but not limited to, the nervous breakdown he had when I broke up with him at one point, about four months before I finally ended it for good, him losing his job again a year later, and extreme alcohol abuse. I'm telling you this story because I think it's important to illustrate what a trauma bond looks like. I get asked a lot in my group and with my clients what it is, and this is it. It's the blindness, the hope, the deep love, the back and forth, the inconsistencies, the feeling that if we can just get it right, if we can just love them enough to heal them, everything will go back to the way it was at first. The trauma bond occurs when there's the hope of something extraordinary that's always just out of reach. Interspersed with abuse and trauma, the snatching away of the promised dream, it's the perpetual giving and taking that keeps the victim in the cycle. It's the ecstatic highs that the victim believes are a manifestation of pure, deep, true love, only to have the tables abruptly turned when the abuser pulls the plug, suddenly distances themselves, or verbally berates the victim. Or, in my case, digging fingers, saying nasty things. Sometimes this push and pull is deliberate, as with a true sociopath like Dirty John or men like that. But most often, it's not deliberate. And in fact, the abuser hates what they've done. And this is where it's most confusing. The cycle is most recognizable in domestic violence cases. And it answers the age-old question, why doesn't she leave? She doesn't leave because she believes the good. And she becomes addicted to the highs. She sees her abuser as broken. And she thinks that if she can just love him enough, he'll stop hurting her. Because hurt people hurt people. And she alone holds the key to healing his pain. Now, I now understand that victims of this kind of abuse are actually the exact wrong ones to try and heal an abuser's wounds because we're the ones who expose the wounds. The more intimate we become, the more we put ourselves in harm's way and the more damage we do to a hurt or wounded partner. But we don't know that when we're in it. When we're in it, we really think that we are the ones. They tell us we are the ones. The other thing that's important to realize is that we tend to do a lot of othering when it comes to abuse, to the point that it becomes very difficult to see it when it's right in front of us, when it's happening to us. You might remember an interview I did on this podcast with a woman named Mickey Zeta, who said that her husband had beaten her daily for 23 years before she realized that she was a battered woman and that her husband, the man she loved, was an abuser. We think abuse happens to certain kinds of women. Very often we think it happens to lower income minority women or that it most often happens with meth addicts or homeless people, not well-educated white women. Let's just call it what it is. We have an unconscious bias about this that we all carry. And like all of our biases, it's just fucking bullshit. It can happen to anyone, but it usually happens to those of us who are primed for it. Usually victims of this kind of abuse tend to be more empathic and, yes, codependent. Most codependents are deeply empathic, and that's often our downfall. 
We're more likely to put someone else's needs, suffering, healing, and growth ahead of our own. Even those of us, like me, who are in therapy, have done a ton of work on ourselves, are in recovery for this kind of codependency, and have already left abusive marriages, even we are susceptible. A trauma bond isn't the same thing as codependency, but codependency is definitely an ingredient of a trauma bond. So not all codependent relationships will create a trauma bond, just as my codependence with my husband didn't create one in the way that my relationship with John did. Because of the way those of us who are codependent were raised, because we were often emotionally neglected as children or we were raised in alcoholic homes, unconsciously, this kind of push and pull, the inconsistency, is what we know. We understand it. We're drawn to it out of our need to try to heal those broken and hurt parts of us. The little girl in us is begging to be healed. So unconsciously, we choose someone who's familiar, who reflects the wounding we received as children, because if we can get them to change, we will be healed. And the times between the abuse, the connection, the love, the intensity of it all, that's what we crave and we see as the healing aspects of our unions. But unfortunately, it's not healing. It's actually the cycle of abuse perpetuating itself over and over and over again. And here's the other thing about this. Most abusers aren't evil Machiavellian characters. They're not Dirty John. They're wounded people for whom we can feel great compassion. We want to heal their trauma. We know they're better than this. And if we can just get them to believe this about themselves, everything will be fine. The highs will define the relationship. Little do we realize that the lows are the real, true essence of this relationship, while the highs are actually the handcuffs that keep us chained to it. On the surface, each one of our abusers looks completely different. John was a stand-up member of society, a respected leader in his field, successful. But when I began to look closer, in hindsight, I saw what I'd missed early on. John was an alcoholic, like so many of the abusive exes in my past, even the sober ones. He didn't drink every day, but when he did, he didn't stop until he was out of control. All of our fights were fueled by jealous alcoholic rages. But because he could go for days or weeks without drinking, I didn't really see it for what it was. And another thing I learned in hindsight is that the romantic notion that you're the one, The first, the only, is a red flag that should be avoided at all costs. It is a sign of love bombing, which can take many forms, and which is a hallmark of abuse to come. So when I pulled my Facebook group this week to see what people most wanted to know about trauma bonds, the overwhelming response was about how to recognize them, how to heal them, and how to continue to co-parent with someone with whom you have a trauma bond. So I hope that I've illustrated how to recognize a trauma bond by telling you my story. Unfortunately, healing trauma bonds is far more complex, and of course, most of the advice out there is to go no contact. And when you're co-parenting with an abuser, you just can't do that for a variety of reasons that I I can't really get into right now um, on the podcast. I couldn't fully do that with John either, but I did my best to set as many boundaries as I could, enlisting friends to help me not have to see him whenever I was going to be put in a position to do so, and also having a trusted friend with me when I absolutely couldn't avoid it. But I wasn't co-parenting with John. I didn't have a legal and custodial obligation to be in communication with him almost daily. And even then, my healing process took years. 
I think it took me a good three years to feel like my life wasn't hijacked by the trauma of that relationship and another two to feel completely healed. So the work ahead of you is going to be long and hard. I am not going to lie about it. In an article about trauma bonds from Psychology Today, Sherry Gaba says, professional help in the form of psychotherapy and life coaching, hello, is always highly recommended. I'm your life coach. Call me. Not only is he or she a trusted, safe person to talk to, but a professional can also help the individual develop effective strategies, such as separation. Separating from the narcissistic abuser is key. This means physical and emotional separation, although the physical side of the separation is much easier. Although, of course, in a co-parenting situation, not so much. Another thing that she recommends is acknowledging one's own choice. Exploring the relationship through coaching or therapy to see the gaslighting, emotional abuse, criticism, control, and the addictive aspects of the relationship is hard work, but it also provides the opportunity for the codependent to recognize, acknowledge, and affirm his or her own positive choices to get away and avoid being held as an emotional prisoner in the relationship. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. Um, The other thing she recommends is developing a support network. Just as the codependent is working to get away and become emotionally free from trauma bonding and abuse, the narcissist is working to bring the codependent back under their control. It is important for the codependent to develop a network of professionals, friends, and trusted family members who understand their goals and are actively, positively, and compassionately there to support them in their journey forward. In addition to this work, learning to identify narcissistic and abusive behavior patterns is a critical part of not just healing, but avoiding these types of relationships in the future. All right, so let me break some of this down. You need a therapist or a coach. I am your coach. If you need help with this, call me. I can help. I work privately with clients on this kind of thing every day, and I would love to work with you on this. You can find a link to book a consult with me in the show notes. So seriously, do yourself a favor and do this. If you think that it is not worth the money, (laughs) I mean, listen, I am not a very expensive coach to work with one-on-one. There are far more expensive coaches out there, far more. Um, And I keep my rates as accessible as possible because I want to work with as many of you as possible. If you can do it, if you can swing it, I want you to do it. There is no better investment. There's literally no better investment for you right now in this period of time than this. It's almost Christmas. Give yourself a fucking present. Okay. You also need to separate from your abuser not just physically, but emotionally. So much of the problem is the emotional ties we have to our abusers, not just the physical ones. And as I've said, you can't go no contact with someone with whom you're co-parenting, but there are boundaries that you can set. You can have all custody exchanges done through school. One parent can drop off while the other one picks up. You can always bring a trusted friend to any event or exchange that has to be done in person, which is that support network that uh, Sherry Gabo was talking about. You can have all of your interactions be purely transactional. Do not get hooked into any emotional conversation, no matter how tempting it is, even to just defend yourself against unfair attacks. This will only serve to keep the hooks into both of you. I've listed three books in the show notes to help with this. This is what's known as parallel parenting, and it differs from co-parenting in that it is far more boundaried, right? Parallel parenting is you are still parenting, but you are on separate tracks. 
I strongly recommend to facilitate this that all communication go through a co-parenting app like FAIR, uh, which I believe is the best one on the market. Again, the link is in the show notes, but if you use the code KANTHONY at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your subscription, which by the way is something like $10 a month. So it's totally worth it. Another thing that you should do that it's a bit more difficult to recognize is understanding what you get out of these bonds. It was really hard for me to break my bond with John because after a few months, one of us would feel like it was safe to text the other some song, lyric, or wistful thought or photograph, and the cycle would begin again. But I had to recognize in myself that I was still hoping he'd change and heal and choose a life with me. When I had all the evidence in the world telling me that he was completely incapable, I was addicted to him, and ultimately, I had to recognize that. I had to recognize that, like alcohol, if I wanted to heal, I wasn't allowed to have him not even in moderation, because there was no moderation with him. And that was my work. And that's what Sherry Gabba talks about. She says, acknowledging one's own choice, right? That that ultimately, it was a choice for me every single time to go back to him. And I needed to look at what it was that was having me make that choice. So look, emotionally separating from someone with whom you are this deeply bonded is extremely difficult because they feel like air, Every time I broke up with John, it felt like the earth had gone off its axis. Every time we were back together, it felt like the earth was put right again. It wasn't true, but man, did it feel like it was. Here's the other thing I want to stress. I don't believe that John is a bad person. He's not. I'm sure the person to whom you are trauma bonded to is not a bad person. John was beautiful and deeply wounded, but he was also bad for me. So you don't have to hate your abuser. You don't have to blame your abuser. You can just understand that in order for you to survive, you need to create as much emotional space between you as possible. And you need to do this like you are a drowning person seizing onto a life preserver. Because that is exactly how serious this is for you. So this is a really deeply complex issue, obviously. And I know I've just begun to scratch the surface of it. So please be gentle with yourself. Know that healing is possible, but you have got to be diligent about your own boundaries. If you're finding yourself struggling with this, as, as I said, this is what I do with private clients. And if you can do that, that like 100% do that. If you can't do that, then I also I want you to consider joining my program, Should I Stay or Should I Go? This program is not just for those who are trying to decide whether they should stay or go. It's about healing from your past. And it will give you so many tools to help overcome this kind of trauma, especially in the modules on emotional abuse, narcissistic abuse, and boundaries. All right, my loves. That's all I have for you today. I hope that you have found this helpful. If you have questions about this episode or anything else, be sure to join my Facebook group, uh, which turned one on Friday. And the women are having just the most amazingly super deep conversations about just this kind of thing and supporting each other in there. And it's just, it's just gorgeous. So um, if you're not in there, get in there. All right. That's all I have for you today. Have a wonderful day. And I'll be back next week with another episode. Love you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.